good to see you all this morning. Wow, got quiet fast. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, the title of my message today is Sin Aware, God Aware. And I always feel like if you say sin, you got to tell everybody, do not be afraid. <laughs> I wish an angel would show up and say, do not be afraid. You know, God loves you. There's good news, great tidings of great joy. And that's how I feel this morning, even talking about sin, like there's good tidings with great joy. So don't let this uh, make you nervous. So um, it's an interesting time of year and a lot of traditional Christian churches they practice Lent, they observe Lent, and um, it's Lent is Latin for 40th, so they remember the 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness, and he dealt with, he was fasting, and he was dealing with temptation, so people who observe Lent, they fast, and they think about the sins and the brokenness and the things that we're tempted with in the world, and Jesus, when he was in the wilderness, so what they're remembering too is the three temptations. And I just want to remind you of them. One was to make bread for himself, to provide for himself. The other was to throw himself off the temple, do something spectacular, signs and wonders, testing the power of God. Prove yourself, Jesus. Prove yourself is what he's saying. Satan is tempting Jesus to prove himself. And then the other one is to bow down and worship. And I'll give you the kingdom. Be powerful, Jesus. Be powerful. So these three temptations to be independent and to prove and to make our own way, to be powerful, those temptations often lead us to brokenness. They lead us to sin, things that we miss the heart of God because we can fall into those temptations I like, one thing I like about the idea of Lent, so they, we, we don't see this hardly ever here in Utah because it's the, uh, we just don't see Catholicism as a, as a predominant sign here where we're at, but um, they smudge their foreheads with ashes. And if you've ever been in a city, like I, I was in New York City once, and you just see everyone on Ash Wednesday, everyone has this sign on their forehead. And it's this collective, um, it's just this collective symbol that from dust we were born and from dust we return. And I think there's something beautiful about all of, like you'll see a person in a suit and you're like, you know, going about their business that day. They, they've got the smudge. You, you'll see a re person at a restaurant, it's smudged. Children playing on the playground, smudged. Old people sitting on the benches watching the children smudged. And it's like, oh, dust to dust. We're broken. My friend who is in the Anglican tradition said it's when we reckon with our brokenness. She's dealing um, just with some brokenness in the world in a way she hadn't seen it before. And she's like, I'm grieving. And I was like, I know you're grieving. And you can't rush the process of grief or it resurges later. So there's something about being aware and being honest that we are dust. Um, Rachel Held Evans in a beautiful book called Searching for Sundays, she says that when we smear the ashes on our foreheads, we together acknowledge the single reality upon which every Catholic and Protestant, every believer and atheist, and every scientist and mystic can agree. There's one thing we all agree on. Remember, you are dust, and 
to dust you will return. <laughs> See, you do agree. If whatever one of those you're in, you agree with the other person. We will return to dust. The difference she reminds us is that we have a promise from the prophet Isaiah that was fulfilled in Christ, that we're crowned with beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And I love this quote. God showed us how to heal instead of kill, how to mend instead of destroy, how to love instead of hate, how to live instead of long for more. When we nailed God to a tree, God forgave. And when we buried God in the ground, God got up. Yeah, hallelujah. From dust we, we come and from dust we will return. The good news is since that we could not become like God who isn't from dust, God became like us. For the next few weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday, Easter, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to look at the idea of sin, transgression, iniquity, brokenness, and the good news in response to it. Now, we have this idea that God hates sin so much that he can't stand to look at us. Have you ever felt that idea or heard that idea? It's wrong. <laughs> my mom <laughs> my mom used to work for Delta Reservations and like way back when when Aaron graduated from college, we went on a backpacking trip to Europe and because we flew standby, because we got standby tickets. It was very by the skin of our teeth. I, we were like beggars across Europe with our backpacks. But Delta had this rule that if you were flying standby, girls had to wear a skirt and guys had to wear a suit coat. <laughs> so we had these giant old raggedy backpacks and Aaron's wearing a coat and I'm wearing a skirt on the airplane. And it's just like, it's so ridiculous. But, or, or in, you know, in the TV shows, when you go to a fancy restaurant, you have to put on a jacket. We have this idea that like our sin is so much that God's like, you're not getting on the plane until you got a skirt on and a jacket. You're not going to eat with me until you got a jacket on. And Jesus is just like, come, come just as you are. And I'm going to cover you, but it's not something you have to bring to the table. And it's not because I can't handle it. God, Jesus can handle anything. If you didn't hear last week's stories, you'll see Jesus can handle anything. He can handle incredible cowboys with lots of integrity in Wyoming who got it all together. And he can handle people calling you to do bad stuff. <laughs> I won't go PG-13 this week. Listen to the message last week. <laughs> I love this quote from John Stott. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. It's kind of what God spoke to us in worship earlier through Stanley. I'm going to say it one more time because we, it's so subtle, this difference. But we fall into this trap just over and over again. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. He came to heal. He came to teach us to heal instead of kill, how to mend instead of destroy, how to love instead of hate, how to live instead of long for more. So we're going to look at, at David sinning today. And David doesn't just sin. He goes for the jugular. 
It's a sex and murder crime of epic proportions. <laughs> He's just going to go for it. And you know what? God's love is there for him. So think for a minute about a difficult time in your life, a testing time in your life when you fought Goliath. Because we know David, we always remember David in popular culture. If there's a movie about David, who are the other two people in it? It's always Goliath and Bathsheba, right? Goliath and Bathsheba. So let's just juxtapose these today. But think about a time when you've had a Goliath in your own life, past or present, a giant that needs to be defeated. It could be, I don't know, a financial hardship, an area of brokenness in your own life where you struggle, a really sick child, a lost job, rejection, some kind of trial or challenge that you have to get past. Those are like Goliaths. They just kind of loom large. They taunt you day after day, two or three times a day. I can't remember how many times Goliath would come out and challenge everyone. I remember a time when I felt really rejected in a relationship and I was a believer. I followed Jesus. I love Jesus. I know there's forgiveness. I know forgiveness is important. And yet I just really struggled with forgiveness and bitterness and rejection. I felt powerless against it. It, it. it started to become this giant that would come out and taunt me. Like I was thinking about that other person. It's like some terrible pop song where all you want is revenge, you know, on whoever took your boyfriend or whatever it is, right? And it was way more serious than that. I'm trying to make it light. <laughs> it was more serious. I felt powerless on certain days against this giant. And that's humbling. It's just humbling. It's like, I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus to help me walk in forgiveness. I need Jesus with me. Without him, I will judge. I will act out. I will do all the wrong things. But God, right? But God comes and helps me. When David faced a lion and a bear and later marched slingshot in hand towards Goliath, he was powerless. He knew, he's like, I'm powerless, but God, but God's power in me. I'm not coming against Goliath. The God of the angel armies is coming against Goliath. It's not me, it's God. And I've got faith in God. The enemy was obvious, the battle was clear. David, David was humble, but God. When David was running from Saul, same thing. He was a man of prayer, a man of worship, a man who inquired of the Lord. He would sing songs like this, Psalm 84. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. There was this hunger and thirst for God. He was passionate about God. Psalm 42, he recognized his need. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Oh, I've got a need that only God can fill. So I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my savior and my God. There was this recognition. I have a need that God can fill. So what happens though, when we don't need God anymore? We've killed our lions. We've killed our bears. We've killed our Goliaths. We've settled into life. Things seem good enough. We're on autopilot. We sit back and become armchair experts, right? On what everybody should be doing and how they should be doing it. Cause we're just like, hmm, 
<laughs> cruising along. Second Samuel 11 tells us about such a time in David's life. David's been king 10 years. He's got worship going 24-7. There's a revival in Mount Zion. Everyone's headed to Jerusalem. He says the word. His people make it happen. He's climbed the ladder of success. He's proven himself. There's provision. There's power. Perfect conditions for temptation. Here it comes. 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. There's this idea that everybody goes out. They need Jesus. They need help because they're going out and getting stuff done. But David is there at home, enjoying life. One evening, well, before we go there, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, he asks, is staying home symptomatic of an anemia of the soul? Is David pulling back from life, a life robust in energetic prayer and daring faith in God? He also highlights the word send. As I tell this story, listen to every time I say send. You just get the idea that David is just sitting here, just commanding everybody what to do. <clears throat> Eugene Peterson puts it this way. We gradually realize that in this context, the word send is not a morally neutral word at all. It signals the impersonal exercise of power. By following the use of this verb, we can trace David's descent from love and obedience into calculation and cruelty. Verb by verb, we watch David remove himself from compassionate listening and personal intimacy with others to a position outside and above others, giving orders, exercising power. Virtually all sins are variations on the theme of wanting to be gods ourselves, taking charge of our own lives, asserting control over the lives of others. So here it goes. In the evening, David's there in Jerusalem. It's nighttime. He gets up. He goes onto the rooftop of the palace. And as he's up there, he looks out across the rooftops, across the courtyards, and he sees a very beautiful woman. As soon as he sees her, what does he say? He gets his people. He says, who is this woman? And they say, well, isn't that Bathsheba? Like, don't we all know who she is? That's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. And Uriah, we know, is not home because he's off with all the armies doing what he's supposed to be doing with Joab. Bathsheba is named She's a person who reflects God's image. She's a daughter. She's a wife. But David sends for her. He sleeps with her. Then he discards her by sending her back home. Now, before you wonder, along with all of popular culture, why was Bathsheba on the roof? It's her fault. She tempted him. What was she doing up there? We don't know. We don't know that the way we read the text today. We know the king sent for her. 
And we know there's every indication that she had no choice in the matter, because when you hear what Nathan has to say about this, I think God makes it pretty clear whose fault this is. God's interpretation, we'll get to it in a minute, but it places all the blame on David. Bathsheba was a victim. Time passes, and she finds out she's pregnant. So now something happens out of David's control. Bathsheba sends word to David. How ironic. I'm pregnant. What are we going to do? She doesn't say that. She just states the facts. David knows how to solve problems. He has the power to do so. So he sends for Uriah and brings him back from the front lines of the army. And he's like, I know what I'll do. I'll invite Uriah back. Uriah will go home and be with Bathsheba. And then everyone will think that Uriah is responsible for this baby. But Uriah, in contrast to David, is very noble and very faithful. And Uriah's like, that's not fair. All my brothers are on the front lines out there risking their lives. I'm not going to go back and be with my family. I'm part of this I'm part of this, this crew, this mission. I'm, I'm, I'm on the king's mission. So he sleeps on the front porch of the king's guard, the palace guard, and stays with them. And David's like, uh-oh, that didn't work. So he's like, let's try this again. He invites David in, and they have a feast, and he gets Uriah drunk. And he's like, okay, surely if he's drunk, he'll lose his inhibitions, and he'll go back to Bathsheba. But Uriah is more noble, even with under the temptation of substance abuse and alcohol abuse. Uriah is like, no, and he sleeps on the front porch with the king's palace guard. Okay, David's uh, level of problem has escalated at another level. His transgression is not so being so easily covered up. So what does he do? He writes a letter to Joab saying, I want you to put Uriah in the heat of the battle on the front lines, and I want Uriah to die. He plans, he schemes, he tells Joab to send Uriah to the front of the battle. And what's worse is he sends Uriah with the letter. Uriah goes back to the front lines with the letter, delivers it to Joab. Joab sends him out into the front lines and not only does Uriah die, but the other people in the battle, because Joab sends them out and then retreats and leaves them like sitting ducks. See, I told you, this is a sex and murder crime of epic proportions. Second Samuel eleven twenty seven, When the period of mourning was over, David sent for Bathsheba and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. Here's another indication. Who's in trouble here? The Lord was displeased with what David had done. I was, Caleb reminded me of Toy Story 1, when Buzz Lightyear gets on the scene, and all the other toys are like super excited about this new toy, Buzz Lightyear, and they're like, and Woody's like, he can't really fly, and all the other toys are like, yes, he can. And he's like, watch me fly. And he climbs up onto the bedpost and he jumps off and it's just this beautiful 
flying escapade all through the toy room. And when he lands, Woody's like, that's not flying. That's just falling in style. David isn't flying. He's just falling with style. David's sin harms Bathsheba, Uriah, and an unborn baby. What David thinks can be covered up spirals into bloody violence and evil and generational patterns that will continue to affect his family and the kingdom for generations. There's a consequence to what happens. Now, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to David, and Nathan tells David this story. There were two men. One was rich, the other poor. The rich men had flocks of sheep and loads of cattle. The poor man had only a little ewe lamb he had bought. The poor man raised the lamb, and the lamb shared his food, shared his drink. The lamb even slept in, in his own bed with him. This little ewe lamb slept in his arms. The lamb was like family. The rich man had flocks and sheep and loads of cattle. Now a traveler came into town to see the rich man. And the rich man, instead of taking the little lamb, a lamb or beef from his own herds and his own flocks, he went and he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man. And he prepared it as a meal for the traveler. Did you guys get that? When David heard this, it says, he burned with anger. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. David is so upset. How would any rich man treat a poor man and his little you this way? Can't, doesn't it make you mad? Doesn't it make you mad what David did? Now, it's easy here for us to look at David's hypocrisy. It's so easy because we've read this word a hundred times in our children's Bibles in pop culture, wherever, even the veggie tales, all of the versions. So it's easy for us to point the finger at David, but what about me? What about you? How often do the sins and injustices of other people outside of us make us indignant and make us burn with anger? How often do we like, Oh, I can't believe they're doing that. I think about all the times in my own life when I get angry at other people for what they're doing wrong and injustice, injustices they've committed. And I, I, I can stew, I can steam, I can... Benjamin Franklin has this fun quote. Love your enemies, for they tell you all your faults. <laughs> And Jesus said, how can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? 
so often we're like David and we burn with this righteous indignation when we're blind as bats to the own sin in our own lives and the own places where we've fallen into temptation. The light bulb still hasn't come on for David when he hears his story. Until 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 9. Nathan has to say it. Nathan says to David, you are that man. The Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? Finally, Nathan stops and says, or David stops and says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've done it. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help it. Taylor Swift fans. <laughs> I'm the problem. It's me, Lord. I've sinned. David is all of a sudden sin aware. He's all of a sudden God aware. The good news is that Christ died to show us how to heal instead of kill, how to mend instead of destroy, how to love instead of hate, how to live instead of long for more. David repents. Nathan says, God's going to spare your life, but there's consequences to what you've done. God's going to spare your life. God loves you. God is with you. God's going to heal you. God is going to heal what's happened. But David writes one of the most famous Psalms. It's one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 51. And it's long, so I'm only going to read a few sections. But this is his prayer that he cries out. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from sin. I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast, a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Not only am I going to learn this for myself, I'm going to tell other people about this. Forgive me for shedding blood, O oh God, who saves. And then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God.
God just wants our hearts. He just wants our honest hearts. He doesn't need armchair experts, Monday quarterbacks, momagers, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. It's not what he needs. He needs, he wants our hearts. He wants us. And he wants us to recognize that we need him. We are broken. I am broken. I need God. Whether I'm facing a Goliath and I know who my enemy is and I know he's powerless or I'm cruising through life on autopilot and I think I've got this all figured out. Either way, either place, we need God. We need a humble heart before him. Paul says to Timothy when he writes him in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, um, do we have 1 Timothy 1.15? He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. If you feel right now that the Goliaths are really real for you, or you're caught in a crazy sin scheme, and you're trying to keep covering it up like David, here's the good news. Jesus came to save you. He came to save you. He wants to save you. If you've proved yourself and you're in a place of provision and power like David in Jerusalem, he wants to save you. He's here to save you. Don't fall into temptation. Don't be unaware. Be sin aware. Take this time before Easter. Take this time before Resurrection Sunday. Take this time to say, Lord, Restore to me the joy of salvation. Show me what's inside of me. Cleanse me. Heal me. Purify me. Show me. Recognize the smudge on your own forehead. Remember, I'm dust like everyone else. And Jesus came to save the world, of, to, into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Psalm 51 next time. Talk a little bit more about Bathsheba and some of the wisdom she might have learned. But for now, go this week. Walk humbly before the Lord and love others. Let's stand and pray if, that, if you're good with that. Lord, we come to you and we just come repentant. We come humble. We come just as we are honestly before you. And we say we are wrestling with brokenness in our land. We wrestle with brokenness in our lives. We wrestle with brokenness in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships, we just want to be honest and transparent and say, oh, what mercy that we get to sin before you because you love us. Because you love us. 
and because you want to save us and because there's joy in salvation. Now, I just, Lord, I pray for every person in this room, every person listening. Lord, this kind of talk, it, it stirs up all sorts of stuff in us, insecurity, fear, shame. We don't want any shame. We just pray that you would remove shame. Each person here, because of you coming, is worthy because you came. When we turn to you, you make us worthy to come into your presence. I just pray that we would turn to you and receive what you've done for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.